Welcome to the Centerpoint Church podcast. At Centerpoint Church, we are a community of believers impacted by God's saving grace and the love He demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Our response to this amazing grace is to allow it to transform our lives and to share it with others. As a body of believers, we find our purpose in knowing Christ, growing together, and reaching beyond ourselves to help others do the same. This is our last week in our, our series uh, called Reconciled, and, and I'm excited to dig into God's Word with you this morning. I've been challenged, and I, I hope that you've been too. Challenged to grow those uh, muscles of mercy and forgiveness. Uh, maybe you notice that uh, they're not as strong as we'd like them to be. I've noticed that for me. I hope that it's been a challenge for you, and I hope you continue to lean in even as we um, finish this series this week. Mercy and forgiveness, I think, are a byproduct of genuine transformation, and that's our ultimate hope, that you are engaging with Christ in such a way that you're generally transformed by the grace of Jesus. Um, When we're transformed by the mercy and grace of Jesus, we're made new. This transformation changes our relationship with God. It transforms us from the inside out, which also changes our relationship with others. When genuine transformation takes hold of our heart, that former way of being, our former way of being dies and, and we're reborn. This is the hope of the gospel as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And this, this morning I want to talk to you about one of those things, um, one of those things that, that we struggle to let go of, that we struggle to allow to die. We seem to be intent on keeping this thing in life support as we enter this new life in Christ. And, and I, I want to I show you I want to explain why it's, it's really important to let this go and how, how, the, how the Scripture, how, how God has equipped you through the power of the Spirit to do just that. So the Scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, we're going to be um, in verses 10 to 13. You're welcome to follow along if you have your Bible or your preferred electronic device. It's going to be up on the screen for you as well. So Romans 14, 10 to 13. Before we go to God's Word, let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our single concern. Amen. So in Romans chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 10. You then, why do you judge another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? For we, all stand, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give a personal account to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few weeks ago, I, I asked a question, and I want to ask it again. What is the church famous for? Have you thought about that? What is the church famous for? Mercy? Are we famous for our forgiveness, our, our grace, our generosity? What about judgment? Is the church famous for being judgmental? 
They seem to be inversely proportional to each other. So inversely proportional means when one goes up, the other one goes down in proportion. So as we grow in our grace and forgiveness and mercy, um, judgmentalism has to kind of go down in proportion to it. It's hard to be famous for mercy and forgiveness and to be famous for being judgmental. So what's going on with that? Why is that? Why would the church be famous for its judgment? It seems as, as we grow in our ability to forgive and extend mercy as ones who've been reconciled to God and who God has called, and God has called us, God has called us to the ministry of reconciliation, uh, we would humbly realize that we're in no position to judge. Why does judgment come so easily to us and reconciliation seems to be so hard? In all my years as a pastor, in all my time on earth, no one has ever come to me struggling to judge someone else. No one's come to my office and said, oh, Jamie, I'm really struggling. I would like to judge so-and-so. It, we, it's, it comes as natural to us as breathing. No one needs to be taught this. We come by it very naturally. Lots of people, lots of people struggle with forgiveness. Lots of people struggle to reconcile, to to extend mercy, to extend grace, to be generous. Why does judgment come so easily to us, but mercy so hard? Tim Keller in his book, Forgive, which I'd commend to you, if you want to go deeper, look up Tim Keller's book. It's entitled Forgive. Tim Keller passed away this week after, and just what a great and inspiring man that helped shape my theology and bless the church, but after three years, a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer, he's with the Lord. And I celebrate that, but his words live on, and I think that's so powerful that, that his legacy and his teaching on forgiveness helps us this morning. So I'm going I'm to work with Tim Keller again this morning and invite him into the space too. Um, this is what Tim Keller wrote. The definition of forgiveness is to renounce revenge, renounce revenge, and be open to reconciliation. I think that's pretty straightforward. Renounce revenge and be open to reconciliation. There are four steps, and we talked about these before if you were with us, four steps in the process of forgiveness. And the first one is to name the sin as punishable, as wrong. Like, to be forgiving isn't to dismiss stuff. Now, as you're mature, there's things that you can dismiss, and I hope as you mature as a follower of Jesus, you can tell what that is. But name the sin as wrong and punishable. It's okay to have that conversation, and it's a place that true reconciliation starts. The second step in reconciliation and forgiveness is to identify the other person as a fellow sinner like you. Not as some monster different from you, but a fellow sinner just like you. The third step is to absorb the cost. To let go of our our desire for vengeance, for revenge, to set that aside, to take, there is a cost in forgiveness. And and we choose to absorb that cost rather than seek out vengeance and seek our own justice. Rather than punishing someone else ourselves, we give up that right and we absorb the cost to forgive. And finally, the aim is to aim for reconciliation. Now, this is a future goal. One of the things about reconciliation, one of the reasons I think this is so hard is we can't get there today. 
We can't start at the end. We need to start at the beginning. And reconciliation um, might sound like, forgiveness might sound like just letting people off the hook, and, and it could be abused in all kinds of ways, and we, we, we stop ourselves from even starting because we're worried about the outcome. And what, what aiming for reconciliation does is it sets a future target that both parties aim for. But if you both stay exactly as you are, you'll never meet at that target. Both parties have to aim for the same target, and it's going to require real, genuine transformation, real, genuine change for you both to arrive at a place of restoration and reconciliation. Keller writes that, that the resources, the resources for forgiveness are twofold, and I think this is so important. I think this is so important. Where do we find the resources? Like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to find it in us? How are we going to have the strength to actually forgive, to extend mercy, to reconcile? And also, here's the thing for the, the point of this message this morning. How are we going to ever get freed from? Because we need to be freed from the crushing weight of judgment. We're just completely ill-equipped to sit in that seat of judgment over others. How do we disentangle ourselves from that seat of judgment and instead extend mercy? How do we do this work? The answer has to be, this only comes as a gift from the Holy Spirit. This has to be the Holy Spirit at work with us, within us, overflowing from us and transforming us, but that still feels undefined. It feels like something a pastor would say. It's the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that actually mean? And I think it's really important to be specific about what we're going to draw upon as we engage in, the, in this ministry of reconciliation. What's going to give us the strength to forgive, to voluntarily suffer in order to forgive and reconcile? Because that's what it is. It's a form of voluntary suffering. So Keller highlights these two resources to draw from, and I think they're really important. The first is this. Poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit. Well, what does that mean? Poverty of spirit is the humility that comes from knowing that you are saved by sheer grace, not merit. The humility that comes from knowing our salvation is by sheer grace, not merit. I think we have greatly underestimated the power of of humility. We think of power in all other kinds of ways. I think there's a lot of power in humility. Poverty of spirit invites us to see ourselves clearly. Do you believe, can you see, that you've been saved by sheer grace, not merit? When you do, when you see it, it is humbling. And it becomes pretty obvious. We have, we have nothing to stand on, on our own merit. Absolutely nothing. Which means, and this is important to, to understand, we're no better than anyone else. We're no better than anyone else. We're all sinners saved by grace. We have no standing. We have no ability to sit in judgment over another. All have sinned and fallen short. None of us have any right to sit in the seat of judgment. And the second resource is wealth of spirit. So if you're tracking with me, if you're tracking with me, poverty of spirit and wealth of spirit, which sound like opposites, poverty of spirit and wealth of spirit are the resources that we draw upon to extend mercy and forgiveness and to free ourselves from the seed of judgment. So what is wealth of spirit? It's the assurance of love. It's the assurance of love. 
I'm going to say it a third time. It's the assurance of love that comes from knowing our salvation is by sheer grace, not merit. Does that sound familiar? It's coming from the same place. Our salvation is by sheer grace, not merit. So what does that mean? Because of the grace of Jesus, you are loved, period. Your identity is secure in Christ. It cannot be taken from you by anyone. We live in the wealth of the Spirit. We, when we live in the wealth of the Spirit, we see ourselves clearly and who we are as, as a new creation. We are loved by God. We are secure in the love of Christ, and no one can take that from us, so it cannot be threatened. There's a level of security that cannot be taken because it is a gift from God. And from this place of security and genuine humility, we're able to extend forgiveness, to reconcile with each other. Poverty of spirit is the knowledge that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Wealth of spirit is the security of knowing that we're fully loved, secure, and saved by the grace of Jesus. Your real identity is in Christ. Your, your real significance is in Christ, and it cannot be hurt or degraded or stolen by anyone or anything else. The more we rejoice as sinners saved by grace, and the more we embrace the reality of our new identity in the love of Jesus, the easier and the more natural it will be to forgive, to reconcile, to extend mercy. Which leads me back to the question we started with. What are we famous for? And why isn't it this? Why isn't it this? How can it not be this? Why isn't it mercy and forgiveness, grace and generosity? Why isn't it this? If you will, imagine with me back to your childhood. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in a grandparent's home. For me, it was in my grandparent's home. Was there a special seat? Is there a special seat in your house? You know what I'm talking about? A special chair. It's somebody's chair, but no one else's chair. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? A seat of honor. A seat of honor that's reserved for one person in the family. When I think back, I can, I can vividly remember my grandpa's brown cloth lazy boy recliner. And, and it fit him. And it fit him so well that when he wasn't in it, you could see the outline of him. Is that's where it had worn. Like, this is where his head went, and this is where his shoulders were. You could like, oh, he's, he's not there, but it looks like he's there. I mean, you could, it literally fit him, right? It was his chair. That's where Grandpa sat. It was not for me, and everyone knew it. I can remember on rare occasions that seat would be vacant. So one time I went for it. I went and sat in Grandpa's chair. It felt mischievous. I think I giggled. I knew I was going to get kicked out, right? But uh, I know, I also knew that I didn't belong there. I knew that that seat wasn't for me. It's a place that I hadn't earned. It was a, hmm. I knew that I didn't have the wisdom. I, I didn't have the experience to occupy that place in the family. It was a position of honor, of respect far beyond my ability as a child. And, and we seem to have this innate desire for authority that exceeds our ability. I think we do the same thing with God. We choose to sit in the seat of judgment. We know it doesn't belong to us. We know it's not for us. We choose to sit in the seat of judgment, but in our immaturity, in our childishness, we fail to comprehend 
that we've been saved by sheer grace. We have been saved by sheer grace, not merit. And we have no business sitting in that seat. Paul, in, in, 2, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, reminds us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is coming. Maybe, maybe you want to sit in the seat of judgment because you have this deep sense of justice. This is something I relate to. Maybe it's just me. It's like, this isn't fair, and someone needs to do something about it, so I'm going to climb up the steps and sit in the seat, and I'm going to be the judge. You feel there's a need for accountability. There need, somebody needs to do something. It can't go on like this. It takes too long. Where are you? And where is the judgment we desire? But it's not your job to do, and it's not my job to do either. The pressure is not yours to bear, and we can't bear it. It'll crush us. We do not have the ability to sit in that seat. It is not for us. And, and maybe I'm just talking to me, but we don't have to worry there's a promise right here. All will be held accountable. Everyone will be held accountable. No one, none of us will get away with anything at all. All of us will give an account. There will be justice, but it's not yours to deliver and it's not mine either. Only Jesus is worthy to sit in the seat of judgment. If you want to go read about, like I, I don't have the space to include this, but go to Revelation chapter 5 and read about the Lamb who is worthy. It's powerful. Only Jesus is worthy, and I'm not him, and you aren't either. So, when we stand before the, the throne of judgment, none of us will be found righteous based on our merit. I hope you know that. None of us. Our salvation is through Christ's righteousness. Our salvation is through Christ. We will stand shoulder to shoulder, all of us, before the judgment seat of God, and each one of us will be guilty. Every single one of us are guilty. We will stand shoulder to shoulder, and by the sheer grace of Jesus, Christ's righteousness will cover our sin, and we will be saved. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the gift of grace, receiving what we do not deserve. The Bible is really clear that sitting in the seat of judgment is not for us. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Really, simply put, we do not have the ability to make righteous. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. So we do not have the ability to judge. I cannot declare myself righteous. I cannot declare you righteous. Nor can I declare you guilty. As one who is guilty, I am guilty. To do so would be to masquerade as one who is righteous. When you climb the steps to assume the seat of judgment, you take on the responsibility of righteousness. And with the measure you use, with the standard you set, it will be measured to you. When you climb the steps to assume the seat of judgment, you become the judge. You also become the standard of righteousness. And you're capable of neither. Judgment is beyond our ability. We are not capable of judging rightly, just as we're not capable of creating our own righteousness before God, and we're not capable of creating righteousness for others. We cannot do this because we're not righteous. 
To sit in judgment assumes inherent righteousness and eternal clarity. (laughs) It's saying, I know all things, and I'm above reproach. I am without sin. I am worthy. And there's only one who is worthy, and it's not us. What scares me the most, because I've sat in the seat too, and it's, it isn't something to laugh about. I'm pretty sure you have, too. What scares me the most about our propensity to do this is when we sit in judgment, we fail to see our own sin. We, we count it as righteousness, because that's the standard. Friends, judgment is not something that the church should be famous for. It's when we come to terms with our own sin and acknowledge and confess our own sin humbly before God that we can see our fellow sinner as like us. And probably more accurately, to see ourselves as fellow sinners. I think that's what we struggle with. We don't have a problem seeing other people's sin. We do have a problem seeing ours. We can see ourselves as fellow sinners just like the people all around us equally in need of the grace and mercy of Jesus. It's only then that we can humbly see with enough clarity to assist one another in dealing honestly with sin because we do. We are called to assist in dealing with our sin together. So this is, continuing in Matthew 7, this is what Jesus says. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the, to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, your eye When all the time you have a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then, and then you'll will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It might be, but I don't think this is a matter of the size of the sin. Like a speck is is smaller than a plank, right? If you think about the metaphor Jesus is using, I don't think it's about the size of the sin, because here's the reality of sin. All sin disqualifies us. One sin disqualifies us and separates us from God forever. I think that Jesus is trying to help us see that our own sin blinds us. Our own sin blinds us. Jesus invites us to first shine a light on those blind spots, to see ourselves clearly and humbly and honestly, to see that our own sin has blinded us to its existence, and that it's only when you're aware of your own sin that you can assume, that you can assume the humble posture that's required to help another person deal with their sin. To fail to see and deal honestly with our own sin is like, is like t- trying to perform a delicate surgery while blindfolded. So if you had to go and have a surgery and your surgeon insisted on operating while blindfolded, would you sign up or what do you think? Do you think that you'd be better afterwards? Would it do more harm or good if you went to the blindfolded surgeon? What do you think would happen? What would be the outcome? When we, when we fail to see our, our own sin clearly and honestly and humbly and try to help other people with their sin, it's like wielding a scalpel while we're blindfolded. And we're surprised at the outcome. We're surprised of how it impacts our, like we're doing harm and we don't understand why that is. It's like, Wielding a scalpel while blindfolded. We cannot see and understand each other clearly until we see and understand ourselves clearly. 
We must draw upon the poverty of spirit and the wealth of spirit, humility as sinners saved by the grace of Jesus, and identity rooted in the love of Jesus, both born from seeing clearly that our salvation is by sheer grace. Sheer grace, not merit. I want to invite you to see clearly this morning. If, if nothing else, I hope that's what you leave with, a level of clarity this morning. And Paul makes things pretty clear in Ephesians chapter 2. This is what Paul writes. As for you, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, it is by grace that you have been saved. This reality gives us the humility to see one another as equals, saved by the sheer grace of Jesus. This reality secures our identity rooted in the love of Jesus, and it's from this place of strength. This is a place of strength, church. The power of humility and the power of identity that's rooted in Jesus that we have the ability to engage in the ministry of reconciliation, to be people of mercy, forgiveness, grace, and generosity. We will all stand before the judgment seat. And we'll stand shoulder to shoulder. Don't kid yourself. It's a flat plane as far as the eye can see, and we'll all stand shoulder to shoulder together. We will give an account for the life that we have lived on earth, and we will be held accountable. When we stand before the Lord, and we will, we'll stand in the poverty of spirit, the humility that helps us see clearly that we're saved by sheer grace, not merit. Humility that extinguishes any childish temptation we might have to sit in that seat of judgment. It is not for us. It never has been. We'll stand in the wealth of spirit, the assurance of love that helps us stand at all. Our legs won't be shaking. We will stand in the wealth of spirit because we know that our salvation is by sheer grace, not merit. We will stand in confidence, covered by the love and grace of Jesus. We will stand as new creations. We'll stand on the unshakable love of Jesus, never to be forsaken. What we won't do, what we must never do, is climb those steps and sit in that seat that's not for us. Sit in that seat of judgment. Just one more time, I want to reemphasize the reality of the gospel. This is the good news. This is Paul writing to Titus, I love it, um, inviting us to humility and security, the love of Jesus, inviting us to see clearly, to see ourselves clearly, and to see our Savior clearly. This is what Paul writes. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Man, that sounds, sounds like the world we're living in, being hated and hating one another. But with the kindness and love of God, our Savior appeared. He saved us. 
Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The more we rejoice as sinners who have been forgiven, and the more we embrace the reality of our new identity and the love of Jesus, the easier and more natural it will be to be people who are famous for mercy and forgiveness, grace and generosity. I want to be a church, and I want you to be part of a church that's famous for mercy and forgiveness, for grace and generosity, a church that strives to walk in the way of Jesus. Tim Keller sums up the gospel call to be people of forgiveness and reconciliation. He writes this. The gospel calls us then to keep an equal concern, to speak the truth and honor what is right, yet be endlessly forgiving as we do so. To speak the truth, honor what is right, and yet be endlessly forgiving as we do so, and to never give up on the goal of reconciled, warm relationship. What if we tried that? What if we aimed for that? Let's do that. Drawing upon the power of humility that comes from the poverty of spirit and the wealth of spirit, drawing upon the security that we have in Christ's love. Let's do this this week and for the rest of our lives. Let's speak the truth and honor what is right. Let's forgive without limit and let us never give up. Never give up on the goal of reconciliation. Church, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you humbly and confidently. We come before you as, as a people who have been saved by the sheer grace of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Nothing we've done has earned our position with you. Everything that Jesus has done has saved us. So God, we come before you and we're all one people. We all have struggled and continue to struggle with sin that separated us from you. And we all have our hope in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, remind us of these things and, and help us live between the poverty of spirit and the wealth of spirit, the humility that helps us to see ourselves clearly and stand in your grace. And the wealth of knowing that we are loved without end without measure beyond imagination, and that our identity is rooted in that risen Savior as well. And from that place of security and humility, God, would you make us into a people that's famous for mercy, for grace, for generosity, for reconciliation. For God, would you make us a people like the Savior that we follow? God, would each day we look more like the Jesus who rose and died and died and rose again for our sin and less like that old life where we were hated and hated one another. God, you're doing a work and you're doing it through us. God, be patient and help us to be diligent in seeking your kingdom and being people of reconciliation. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Centerpoint Church Podcast. Be sure to keep up with us on social media at facebook.com slash wearecenterpoint or on Instagram at wearecenterpoint. We hope to see you soon in person for worship this Sunday at 930.